Today's reading is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 22 through 24. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to bring, begin my sermon this morning with a prayer of illumination, which I think is fitting, especially on Pentecost Sunday. But these words come from the Psalms. May the words of my mouth, O Lord, and the meditations of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Friends, this has been one of the darkest weeks in the history of Minneapolis. I love this city. I was born here, like my father before me, and his father before him. I grew up here in South Minneapolis. I went to school here, kindergarten through college. I always joke that until I was 24 years old, I never had a zip code outside of the city of Minneapolis. I grew up playing sports at Martin Luther King Jr. Park. I grew up in this very church. And all of this has shaped how I see the world. I got my best friend, Cameron, through this church. Uh, We met when we were just toddlers um, upstairs in the twos and threes room. And, And we always joke that we're, you know, friends, best friends, from the cradle to a shallow grave. And, uh, Cameron is, is black. And I don't say that to say, you know, some of my best friends are black. But his pain this week has hit me hard, his anger, his frustration, his concern for our other friends who we played basketball with every single Monday night. And I say played, you know, until, until this whole COVID thing happened and, and we put the game on hold and, and it's like the pandemic, remember that? We were sitting socially distanced, of course, by the fire on uh, Wednesday night in my backyard. And he asked me 
of me, his white friend, to stand against racism wherever I saw it. And then he also asked me, you know, what responsibility, you know, I, I saw myself as having uh, to my congregation in, in the midst of all this. How do I understand my calling to speak into the events that have unfolded over um, this awful week? And so this sermon is one tiny part of a beginning to an answer to that question. And I know, and you know, and we all know, and Matt has already said, uh, that there's no one sermon that's going to tick the box, you know, fix everything. One cleanup day is not going to fix everything. One rally can't fix everything. One Facebook post can't fix everything. Uh, no one thing can fix everything, and we're not naive. But small things do matter. Small things add up. Small things can become big things that change the world. Small things like the church on, on Pentecost, which is the holiday that we are, are celebrating today as a church. It's, it's the birthday of the church. And not the birthday of this particular church, but the capital C church. The church of Jesus Christ. And the church started smaller than we could ever imagine. It started with a few disciples huddled in an upper room, waiting waiting for Jesus to fulfill his promise to them that they would receive a power from on high. Then, out of nowhere, there came a sound like a, a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house and then divided tongues as, as a fire rested upon each and every one of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Wind, noise, fire, Spirit. And the church was born as this tiny little group of disciples began to speak in the languages of every nation under heaven about the mighty works of God. They told people about Jesus, who had been executed weeks before, as the mob had cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. That same Jesus had been raised from the dead and thus was both Lord and Christ. And their message cut, cut the people who heard it to the heart. And God added to, that num to their number that day those who were being saved. And so Pentecost was, was born in spirit and fire that led to the salvation of thousands that day. And it birthed a global multi-ethnic movement of God's people that continues to this very day. And brothers and sisters, what we have seen this past week in Minneapolis has been an anti-Pentecost, a demonic parody of what happened in Jerusalem two millennia ago. Now let me explain to you what I mean. And so first we need to deal with, with the gift of the Holy Spirit. On Pentecost, God unleashed the Holy Spirit into the world and into the lives of those who trust in Jesus. And, and, and the Greek word for spirit is pneuma. And the Hebrew word is ruach. And both of those words mean breath. Because breath is life. And God is the giver of life. The breath of God hovered over the waters at creation God breathed into the nostrils of, of Adam and he became a living being. 
God's breath fell upon the prophets as they delivered a word from the Lord. God's breath entered into the womb of the Virgin Mary, and she conceived and bore a son. God's breath came down upon Jesus at the waters of his baptism like a dove. And Jesus declared at his inaugural sermon in his hometown synagogue, The words of the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And on the cross, when Jesus died, he surrendered the breath of life that God had given him back to the father. God's spirit, God's breath everywhere gives life. This past Monday night, we saw the breath of life being taken from George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man who died underneath the knee of a white Minneapolis police officer. George Floyd spent eight minutes and 46 seconds underneath that officer's knee, five minutes and 53 seconds of which he was still breathing. That's enough time for the average adult uh, male to take 100 breaths, the last 100 breaths that he would ever take. And the video, if you've seen it, is almost impossible to watch. When it starts, George Floyd is on his stomach, and one of the arresting officers, Derek Chauvin, has his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck. Mr. Floyd begs and pleads. Officer Chauvin says nothing. The small crowd that is witnessing these events and and filming them begs and pleads. Nothing. Mr. Floyd says, I can't breathe. And then mama. One bystander in particular was incensed. And at the very end of the video, he utters these words, which he could not have understood in that moment, how prophetic and true they would prove to be. He said this to Officer Chauvin. That man is going to haunt you for the rest of your life, bro. He's going to haunt all of us. In that video, what we saw was man's inhumanity to man. We saw life callously, needlessly, and cruelly extinguished. We saw a man and a a small crowd pleading for mercy. And all they got back was a look of sheer indifference. It was actually more evil than any look of anger, far more disturbing than any look of fear. It was a look that said, I don't care. Across the world, the reaction to that video has been near universal shock, condemnation, anger, and horror. I watched it all. And all I could say was, stop, stop, stop. Just let the man get up. Don't let it end this way. In black America especially, the reaction has been that this is just another piece of evidence that black lives don't matter, that they are disposable, that police can do this and get away with it, that 400 years after the first African slaves arrived on this continent, 163 years after Dred Scott, 157 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, 143 years after the end of Reconstruction that ushered in an era of racial terror under Jim Crow, which saw 3,000 black Americans lynched, 
124 years after Plessy versus Ferguson, 66 years after Brown v. Board, 55 years after the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, 52 years after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., 29 years after the beating of Rodney King, they still have to put up with this. That this country, which they helped build into the nation that it is today, that they have fought and died to defend in every war, that they have made incalculable contributions to is still not fully their own. Now, undeniably, progress has been made. To deny that would be to denigrate the work and names of people like Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, W.E.B. Du Bois, Thurgood Marshall, Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, Andrew Young, and Barack Obama. But the question remains, how many more Ahmaud Aubrey's? Breonna Taylor's, Botham Jean's, Philando Castile's, Freddie Gray's, Walter Scott's, and George Floyd's must there be until it stops. How long until there is a sense that law and order aren't weapons to be wielded against you, but are tools to be used for you to build a better life and a better future? That serve and protect includes each and every American. The video has sparked an uprising across the city and across the nation to declare without equivocation that black lives do matter and there needs to be justice for George and that this should never happen again. And as a Christian, I affirm that with all of my heart. And in the midst of all this, though, I just want us to pause for a moment and remember George Floyd. Not just for his death, but for his life as well. Kate Shelnett wrote a, a wonderful article this week in Christianity Today entitled, George Floyd Left a Gospel Legacy in Houston. And it doesn't attempt to paint him as some two-dimensional saint. It's not a hagiography. But it does seek to bear witness to who he was as an image-bearing, spirit-endowed child of God. I want to read this as a tribute to him. The rest of the country knows George Floyd from several minutes of cell phone footage captured during his final hours. But in Houston's third ward, they know Floyd for how he lived for decades. A mentor to a generation of young men and a person of peace ushering ministries into the area. Before moving to Minneapolis for a job opportunity through a Christian work program, the 46-year-old spent almost his entire life in the historically black third ward where he was called Big Floyd and regarded as an OG, a de facto community leader and elder statesman, his ministry partners say. Floyd spoke of breaking the cycle of violence he saw among young people and used his influence to bring outside ministries to the area to do discipleship and outreach, particularly in the CUNY Homes housing project, locally known as the BRICS. George Floyd was a person of peace sent from the Lord that helped the gospel go forward in a place that I never lived in, said Patrick P.T. Ngwolo, pastor of Resurrection Houston, which held services at CUNY. The platform for us to reach that neighborhood and the hundreds of people we reached through that time and up to now was built on the backs of people like Floyd. Ngwolo and fellow leaders met Floyd in 2020. 2010, he was a towering six-foot-six guest who showed up at a benefit concert they put on for the Third Ward. From the start, Big Floyd made his priorities clear. He said, I love what you're doing. The neighborhood need it. The community need it. 
And if y'all about God's business, then that's my business, said Corey Paul Davis, a Christian hip-hop artist who attended Resurrection Houston. He said, whatever y'all need, wherever y'all need to go, tell them Floyd said y'all good. I got y'all. The church expanded its involvement in the area, holding Bible studies and helping out with groceries and rides to doctor's appointments. Floyd didn't just provide access and protection. He lent a helping hand as the church put on services, three-on-three basketball tournaments, barbecues, and community baptisms. He helped push the baptism tub over, understanding people that were going to make a decision of faith and get baptized right there in the middle of the projects. He thought that was amazing, said Ronnie Lillard, who performs under the name Reconcile. The things that he would say to young men always referenced that God trumps street culture. I think he wanted to see young men put guns down and have Jesus instead of the streets. You can read the rest at at ChristianityToday.com. So on Pentecost, God's spirit, God's breath, descended upon the church and, and, and broke forth a revolution of grace into the world. And this Memorial Day on the corner of 38th and Chicago, one and a half miles from where I'm standing right now, George Floyd's spirit was taken from him. And amongst his last words were, I can't breathe. Lord, have mercy. And then there's the fire. At Pentecost, tongues uh, as a fire descended upon the apostles. And fire in scripture is a sign of God's holy presence, of his terrifying and awesome power. God led the Israelites by the pillar of fire on those cold desert nights as they wandered in the wilderness. God's holy fire consumed the top of Mount Sinai when he revealed the law to Moses. John the Baptist declared that, that someone was coming after him, Jesus, who would baptize not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. When the fire of God is present, God's holiness is present to refine us, to burn away what is impure in us so that we can come closer and closer to him. And fire from God, it's also like a campfire on a cold night. It's a fire that draws us in, that warms us, that builds the community that can only happen around a fire. It comforts us. Jesus calls Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the comforter. But these past few nights have seen a different kind of fire descend on Minneapolis. Fires of anarchy, fires of destruction, fires of hopelessness, fires of hate. Fires that have decimated local businesses, many of which are owned by immigrants and people of color. Fires that have destroyed community institutions, including a Native American youth center. Fires that have deprived the people who need it most of places to buy groceries and have their prescriptions filled. Fires which burned to the ground a 190-unit housing development that was a mixture exclusively of affordable housing and deeply affordable housing. Fires that have terrorized the residents of our city. Fires that our brave firefighters have risked their lives to extinguish. These fires do nothing to honor the memory of George, George Floyd. They do nothing to bring him justice. They do nothing to reform the police. They do nothing to help historically marginalized or oppressed people. In fact, they do the opposite. As Christians, we need to be willing to say what I thought was obvious before going on Facebook this week, that we cannot burn our way to a better Minneapolis. 
We cannot burn our way to a, 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 we cannot riot our way to a better Minneapolis. We cannot loot our way to a better Minneapolis. And the same is true for our entire country. We cannot align ourselves with those who want to burn it all down. We need to be a people who work together to build it back up and make it even better than it was before. Atlanta rapper Killer Mike, who I should note has never killed anyone, uh, and who is uh, every middle-aged uh, white dad's favorite rapper from his work with the group Run the Jewels, said it best. I am duty-bound to be here to simply say that it is your duty to not burn your own house down for anger with an enemy. It is your duty to fortify your own house so that you may be a house of refuge in times of organization. I'm mad as hell. I woke up wanting to see the world burn down yesterday because I am tired of seeing black men die. We want to see the system that sets up for systemic racism burned to the ground. And he said that when, when addressing uh, the city of Atlanta that he loves so dearly. And I've seen a quote from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. being shared quite a bit on social media. The shorter version of of this quote from Dr. King is this, a riot is the language of the unheard. Um, uh, I happened to minor in African-American studies at the University of Minnesota. I was a history major, but my favorite professor taught in the African-American studies uh, department. And so I took so many classes with him that one day my advisor told me that I had gotten to a minor. And my professor was Dr. Keith Mays. He still teaches at, at, at the U. And his focus was primarily in the history of the uh, modern civil rights movement. And so in studying that movement, and, and read David Garrow's uh, Bearing the Cross, uh, it's, it's a masterwork uh, in, in, in King's life and his work and his ministry. Uh, what's clear is, is that Dr. King was not a riot apologist. He, he had to work extremely hard to tamp down the understandable uh, violent rage of black Americans. And he took a lot of criticism for, for, for it from other leaders, like Malcolm X, who saw him as weak. But what Dr. King was trying to say, and what I think the people sharing that quote uh, are trying to say, is that we would be fools to not hear what is being said in these riots. That doesn't mean agreeing with what they say. Doesn't mean condoning what they say. That doesn't mean uh, that what they're saying is good or, or, or profound. And they don't say any one thing. But it does mean that if, as the church, we want to address the deep pain, brokenness, and social evils that these riots reveal that's latent in our nation, we do need to listen for what the Spirit is telling us to discern from them. Here's another perspective on rioting from a uh, Representative John Lewis, who himself is a civil rights icon and, and a Christian. He was the head of SNCC in the early 1960s, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And he played a pivotal role, absolutely pivotal role, in, in extending access to the ballot box to disenfranchised black Americans. Here's what he said in his memoir. That's what a riot is, just letting it out. Nothing is held back. Anything goes. Burning, looting, killing, even one another. Part of the effort of the movement was to tame the madness of men. To take the beast that lives in all of us and turn it toward love. To show humankind a different way. To teach the way of compassion, of connection and community, of peace and nonviolence. Yes, we are human. And yes, there is a savage inside of us all. 
The first impulse of man has always been to react like an animal, to respond and attack in a like manner. If someone hits you, strike back. If someone bombs you, bomb back. But there have been teachers, men and women throughout history, who have stood and said, no, you can't take an eye for an eye. If you do, we will all be blind. At some point, we have to lift ourselves to a higher plane, and it is possible. Men have shown throughout history that it is possible. It is possible. It is possible. There is a different fire that burns in this world. That's not from this world. A a, a fire that, that doesn't destroy what is good, but only what is evil, and heals and cleanses and draws us together. We desperately need that fire to descend upon us again. And I want to come now to my last point. Last night I saw a clip that featured an an exchange between a a white Antifa uh, type rioter and a black resident of Minneapolis. And the black man was out in his neighborhood upset uh, uh, at rioters for making a barricade in, in his street and setting fires in the street. And so the rioter, the white rioter says to the black resident, I'm trying to save lives. And the man responds, you are? This is how you save them? You save them by being peaceful. And to this, the rioter responded with rage, no, bro, no, bro, we're past that. It's past being peaceful. The man replied, so this, pointing at the fire, pointing at the rioters gathered behind the barricade. So this is the answer? This made the rioter even angrier, and he gestured towards the man wildly with wrath. What's the answer? Tell me right now. We all sing kumbaya and sit there until they arrest us? Give me a solution and I'll go. Give me a solution and I'll go. People are hungry for a solution. So what's the solution? Pentecost also gives us that. The solution is Jesus Christ. Now we've got to unpack that, of course. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend it's so, so facile. We just say the solution is Jesus Christ and that solves every problem. No, no, no. We've got to unpack that. We have got to live that out. And that's a long work. But it's right in our neighborhood. So we better be committed to it. But for the church, any answer that doesn't start with him will lead us to nowhere. The solution is God pouring out his spirit on his people. And it's us getting our hands and our feet dirty, doing the hard work of listening, learning, repenting, rebuilding, and working side by side with our brothers and sisters of all colors to reveal God's kingdom here in our midst, to make the world a more just and peaceful place to affirm in this moment and going forward the value and dignity of every black life. What's the solution? It's to cultivate in our hearts and our church and our networks the kind of things that that John Lewis said was possible in his memoir. 
These are the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And the point of cultivating this fruit is not to leave it on the tree. It's to share it with a world that is hurting, that's crying out, that is dying to be set free from hatred, from oppression, from injustice, from evil, from prejudice, from violence, from sin, from anger, and from despair. And so let this Pentecost be for us the beginning of a total reversal of the counter-Pentecost this week. And let us pray for Minneapolis and for America. Come, Holy Spirit. Let us breathe again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for the gift of your Spirit that leads us into your truth, that leads us into your work, that fills all who belong to you. And we also praise you for that spirit that Paul tells us, uh, cries out with our spirit, with words that are too deep for groaning and even for expression. And God, we need that spirit today. And we need that spirit moving forward in in, in the long work towards justice, peace, and reconciliation that lies ahead. And so, Lord, let us not sin against your Holy Spirit. Let us not grieve your Holy Spirit. But instead, let us honor you by accepting its work in our hearts, our lives, our communities. In Jesus' name, amen.